Good morning, church. So what do you do when you hit rock bottom? My son, uh, Will, some of you guys know he's, um, he's a baseball player. Uh, he's a visual learner. Um, and my wife and I, we laugh a lot because uh, when he was younger, we lived in Atlanta. And we swear that the way he learned to play baseball was by watching the Braves uh, play on TV. And what we would do is we would record the games in our DVR back when people had DVRs, you know. And, uh, and he would rewatch the same games over and over again. And he would literally reenact every play, like every pitch. He did what the pitcher did. Then he would jump and do what the catcher did. And then if it was a hit, he would do what the batter did. And if it was a throw to first, he would get over there. And like literally every play, he was in motion. He probably burned like 10,000 calories a minute because he's literally reenacting every single play. And what we figured out is you could tell him something 12 times and he wouldn't get it. But you show it to him once, and ah, the lights come on, right? Some of you guys are visual learners. I get that. Uh, and so what I want to do is just use this ladder uh, as an illustration because sometimes you have to see something, right, uh, to get it. So what I want to ask you is have you ever had this feeling, if I fall, no video, please. <gasps> have you ever had this feeling of being on top of the world, right? You know what I'm talking about? You know what life is like on top of the world? It's that feeling when, like, everything in your job is going really, really well. Like, you're getting promotions, things are going well, uh, your colleagues like you, your boss appreciates you, or your company is growing, and, and you're getting more and more clients and customers all the time, and you're making more money than you've ever made, and you're just on top of the world. Or maybe, maybe life in your marriage is just fantastic, you know? Things between you and your spouse are going better than they've ever been. I mean, it's not like you're just doing life, it's like you're friends again. You know, you're flirting, you're, you're going on dates, you're enjoying each other's company. You text just because, you know. Um, life in your marriage is wonderful, and it just feels like you're on top of the world. Or maybe with your kids. It's like you're thinking, man, I, you know, we, you, know you don't always feel this way, but sometimes it's like, I'm, a, I'm rocking this parent thing, you know. I'm a good dad. I'm a good mom. Like, you know, it's worked out. Like, you know, you look at your kids, and you're like, they're turning out okay. Maybe I'm not that terrible after all, you know? <laughs> you feel like, man, I'm on top of the world. My kids are turning out really, really well. You just feel like life is going the way you always thought it would go, and, and you just, it just feels like you're winning at life. You're on the mountaintop. You're on top of the world, maybe even in your, your spiritual life. You just feel like you're in a season where, like over like the last few days or maybe weeks or maybe even months— you just really felt close to God. Like, you, you feel like you pray and he hears you. You feel like, you know, when you worship, he's in the room. You feel like the God that you have believed all of your life really is who he says he is. He's alive and he's living and you're in a relationship with him. Like, re when you read the Bible, like his words are coming to life for you, you just feel like you're on top of the world. But what happens, what happens when all that comes crashing down? And what happens when you go from the mountain to the valley? What happens when that job that you thought was going really, really well, you walk in to visit your boss one morning and you find out your services are no longer needed? What happens when, you know, maybe lately things between you and your spouse haven't been great, but they haven't been terrible. But you start talking and you find out that they think it's, they just think you need some time apart. 
What happens when, I mean, God forbid, your kids get sick or you find out that they have an issue or a problem and you realize that the road ahead is going to be long and difficult? What happens when you feel really, really far from God and you pray and you pray and you beg God for help and it just feels like those prayers hit that ceiling and bounce down and never go anywhere else. What, what do you do when you hit rock bottom? Where do you turn when you're not winning at life? What happens when you're in the valley? What do you do? If you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, we've been talking about this guy, Elijah, who was just this incredible character in the Old Testament. Uh, He appears on the scene in 1 Kings 17, literally out of nowhere. He's a no-name prophet from a no-name town in a no-name place in the middle of Israel no one's ever even heard of. And God sends him to the most powerful man in Israel, the king of Israel, Ahab is his name. And he tells Elijah to go tell Ahab that for the next three years there's not going to be any rain because Ahab and his wife Jezebel are evil and they've led the people of God away from God. So Elijah does that. He's fearless. He goes and he approaches Ahab and he says, you need to know, you've been evil, your wife is evil, you've led the people of God away from God, they've been worshiping Baal and Asherah and other idols and they've not been worshiping the one true God. So because of that, I'm going to pray and God's going to stop the rain I know you think that Baal is the God of nature, the God of fresh water, but it's really Yahweh God, and he's going to prove it. He's going to stop the rain and the dew. There'll be no water for the next few years. Elijah prays. The rain stops. Elijah goes into hiding, and you would too. He's scared for his life. Every day, Ahab and Jezebel are searching for Elijah. In fact, they kill any prophet of God they come across because they blame them for the drought, even though they're worshiping the God they think is the God of water. Well, the story goes on, and we talked about this last week. After three years of no rain, God sends Elijah, this no-name prophet at this moment in time, back to Ahab, the king. And again, Elijah is fearless. He goes before Ahab again, and he says, Hey, here's what I propose. Let's meet on Mount Carmel, and let's put a contest together for your God versus my God, you versus me, your prophets versus versus this prophet. And sure enough, they do. And if you were here last week or if you've read the story, you know how it goes. They build two altars, and Elijah says, you cry out to your God for fire from heaven. I'll cry out to my God for fire from heaven. Whoever sends fire from heaven, that'll be the one true God. And Ahab says, yeah, let's do that. So they do. And 850 prophets show up for the false gods. About 400 for Baal, 450 for Asherah, versus one little old Elijah They pray for hours on end. Nothing happens. Elijah prays for 30 seconds. And immediately, fire comes from heaven. Swallows up, engulfs the altar, the wood, the sacrifice. And he even drenched it with water. And nothing could stop the fire that fell from heaven from the one true God. And this moment, Elijah, you know, is literally on a mountaintop experience. He has just prayed and seen God answer that prayer in a miraculous and mighty way. And after that happened... It says that everyone, everyone, okay, just picture this. It's like the stadium is filled. All of Israel is there. 
All these false prophets are there. King Ahab is there in his box seats and everyone cries out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord, Yahweh, he is the one true God. Revival has broke out on the mountain as God has answered Elijah's prayer. And he feels like he is on top of the world. So what happens next for our fearless prophet? If you've got your Bibles or if you have an app, you want to turn that on, open that up. We'll look at 1 Kings 19. And I want you to see what happens next in the life of Elijah after this incredible mountaintop experience with God, after revival has broken out because of his ministry. I want you to see what happens next in the life of Elijah. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel, his wife, the evil queen, Everything that Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. You see, after Elijah had that victory, he put all those prophets of Baal to death. And you have to wonder at this point in the story, if Ahab, maybe Ahab, the evil king of Israel, had turned for a moment back to the exclusive worship of Yahweh, the one true God. It seems that that happened, right? I mean, how could he not? In this one instant on the mountain, God had sent fire from heaven, and everyone on the mountain said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Ahab would have been killed in that moment by all the people if he had said, No, 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 He's not, right? Everyone said it. In that moment, it appears that maybe, maybe, just maybe, Ahab had turned back to Yahweh, if even for a moment, and maybe even Elijah thought, This has been incredible. It's been incredible what God has done. And what's even better is Ahab saw it happen. So maybe Ahab's going to go home and tell Jezebel what the one true God has done. And maybe she too will turn back to God. And maybe the leaders of the people of God will turn back to the one true God and turn all the the nation back to God. Elijah, I think, is hoping that the revival that broke out of the mountain will continue into the streets because of what God has done. So Ahab goes home and he tells Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, really what God had done through Elijah. And I have to think that Elijah was just hoping that maybe this will be the moment that turns the nation back to God. Here's how Jezebel responds. Verse 2. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. And you can tell from the bat, she's not buying it. She says, may the gods strike me and kill me. If by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you have killed them, just as you killed my prophets. Now you got to think, as soon as Elijah hears this message from the queen, he is, at best, disappointed, right? Maybe discouraged. I mean, over and over again, over the last three years, His God, Yahweh God, the one true God, has proved over and over for three whole years that he is the only God, right? He proved that, you know, you put him up versus Baal, he is the true God over all the earth, the one God of nature, the one God of water. You put him up against God, Baal, or even Asherah on the mountain, and he sends fire from heaven proving that he is not just God over all the earth, but he is God over all other gods, And now, after all he's done over the past three years, after all Elijah has been through over the past three three years, Jezebel is still not buying it. you got to believe Elijah was hoping that this would be the moment that turned everybody back to God. But it didn't work. Instead, Jezebel has chosen to ignore 
what God is doing, refusing to turn to God. And Jezebel does what people who have power do when they get afraid, right? This is what people do who have power when they get afraid or they feel threatened. They turn and they threaten to use their power for violence against those who might come against them. And that's what Jezebel does in this moment, threatening to kill Elijah. So what does Elijah, our fearless prophet up to this point in the story, do? Verse 3. Elijah was afraid. And I'm not making this up, by the way. This is like really what happened. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Just take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. I don't know if you're like me. I've, I've probably read this a thousand times, and every time I do, I wonder the same thing. Why in the world was Elijah afraid? I mean, Elijah has, has seen this pattern over his life for the last three years. He's had every reason to be afraid every day, every moment for the last three years. And time and time again, what Elijah has done has responded. He's responded with courage. He's responded with a sense of fearlessness. He has gone before the king repeatedly, even when his life was threatened. And every time God has preserved his life, every time God has protected him, every time God has proved himself, every time at every turn at every corner, God has been faithful to Elijah. So why in the world is Elijah afraid now? I've wrestled with this. Maybe you have too. You you may have better answers than I do. Here's the thing I keep coming back to. I think the reason Elijah was afraid is because he's human. It's human. It's interesting, James, the brother of Jesus, would later write a letter to the churches, and, and James would say that Elijah, one of the things he would say about Elijah, he would say, Elijah, in so many ways, is just like one of us. Elijah, <laughs> I think he was just human. And coming off of the mountain after seeing God act in a powerful way, honestly, I think he was tired. I think he was spent. I think he was mentally and physically and spiritually depleted. And you know what happens when you get drained? You know what happens when you get depleted? You know what happens when your energy runs low? Uh, This is what happens for me at least. Whenever I'm tired, whenever I've been running and running and going and going, even whenever I've come off an incredible mountaintop experience with God, if I've spent all my energy doing that, when I come down off that moment, when I come down off the mountain, so many times when I get to the bottom, I'm just tired. And I think in this moment, Elijah was spent. And his courage, honestly, was gone. He was gone. And and I think we have to remember this about ourselves too, right? That the truth of the matter is, and we have to give each other grace in this moment because we have to realize this about each other, not just ourselves, but we are not robots, right? We're not. We are human. And humans need rest. Humans need time for recovery. Humans need a chance to, to have margin, to regroup. 
some of you guys know um, one of the things I like to do or enjoy doing for exercises is, is to run. And uh, when, before I moved to Texas, I had run a couple of 5Ks. I got here and I thought, man, it'd be great to run a 10K. I did that. I thought I survived that. Maybe, just maybe I could run like a half marathon, which was just hilarious at that point, point in time. I realized pretty quickly, although I wanted to do this, I wanted had this big dream, this big goal to run a half marathon. I had no idea how to do it. So I found a couple of guys here at our church that, that had done that before, and they were really gracious in helping me train for that and ran with me, and we actually ran a half marathon together. But one of the things I learned through that is if you're training for a half marathon, unless you're a robot, you don't run every day. Like you have to, to take a day or two during the week to break from that running so your body can rest and recover and recoup so that you can then be ready to run those long distances again. And if that's true in our physical life, I think it's true in our spiritual lives too, that sometimes we need time to rest. We need margin to recoup. We need a chance physically, mentally, and spiritually to have that margin, to have that chance to reboot. But Elijah didn't get that. He's coming right off the mountain, and Jezebel immediately sends a threat his way for his life. And in that moment, after the mountain, Elijah goes from maybe one of the highest moments in his life to one of the lowest valleys of his life. Here's what happens in verse 5. Elijah lay down and slept under a tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate, and he drank, and lay down again. Then, get this, the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. The food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. This may be my favorite part of the story. And this may be the part of the story that you need to hear today. I love this part of the story because God knew that his prophet, his man, his person, had been faithful to him on the mountain. And that what he needed now was for him, for God, to be faithful to him in the valley. And God knew at this moment in his valley, he knew exactly what Elijah needed most. And so what did he do? He fed him. What did he do? He gave him something to drink. What did God do? Did he scold him for being afraid? Did he get on to him for, for not having faith in this moment? No. He let him rest. In fact, he gave him the best rest he's ever had. And I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but one of the things I hope you begin to figure out is that when you're at your lowest moment, God is not looking down on you in anger. He's looking down on you with compassion. God knows exactly where you are and exactly what you need. He knew exactly what Elijah needed in this moment. And he takes care of Elijah, and then he sends him to a place where he can talk to him one-on-one. So Elijah comes to this mountain, to this cave, and here's what happened. The Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. And then Elijah says this. It's not true, but he says it. He says, I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. 
I don't know if you figured this out in your own life. I figured this out in my life and the lives of those that I know. That when you're spiritually and emotionally and mentally depleted, you begin to feel things that you have every right to feel, but they're not based in fact. You know what I mean? Uh, you feel things that are just untrue. Elijah here feels like he's the only one. In fact, he tells God, I'm the only one left. And that's not true. We're about to learn that there are 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal. And that's in large part, by the way, because of Elijah's faithfulness and his ministry to Israel. We also know from earlier in the story there are a hundred prophets of God who are still alive and who are carrying on the mission of God. Elijah is not the only one, but he feels like it. Because he's emotionally and mentally and spiritually depleted, he's wiped out. He feels like he's all alone, that he's got nothing left to live for. He feels like this threat to kill his life is imminent and, and that Jezebel's going to win, even though... I mean, don't forget, for the last three years, his life has been in danger every day, but God has been faithful and protected him every moment, and that hasn't changed. So God tells Elijah, verse 11, Go out and stand before me on the mountain. The Lord told him, and as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord... He wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. He had seen fire before, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak And he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. The voice and the presence of God is found in the sound of a gentle whisper. The same God who has a voice like thunder now comes to Elijah in the sound of sheer silence. And it's in this quiet place where Elijah is alone with God that he hears the voice of God in a gentle whisper. I was telling Grayson a couple days ago, it's, it's kind of wild that um, we're talking about this story today, this passage today. And I didn't plan it this way, but it's just funny how things work sometimes. Because this past week I've, I've, spent, I've spent most of the week on a silent retreat at a monastery up in Lake Dallas. I've been blessed. Our elders have given me the opportunity over the past two years, twice a year, to get away on a silent retreat. And this week was that week where I got together with some other ministers from all over the country uh, to, to go up to this monastery to spend some time in silence to learn more about the spiritual practices, to learn more about uh, con- the contemplative life and prayer. And that's all been put in place by uh, someone that you may know. Some of you know Randy Harris. And if you know Randy, you know that's no surprise that he would, he would pull something like this together. And so we, we get together and we, we learn about these practices and we learn about the silence and we learn about hearing God and we spend time practicing these things to the best of our ability as we're trying to learn and stumble and fumble through it. But one of the things that Randy says all the time is that the reason the spiritual practices are so important. The reason finding God in the silence is so important. The reason it's so important for you to stay plugged into God and plugged in even to the community of God, the church, is because, it, these are his words, you're always preparing for you know not what. Think about that. 
The reason it's so important for you and I, like Elijah, to find God in the silence is because you and I, we are always preparing for we know not what. And Elijah comes to this moment in the mountain where he's able to get quiet, as you know he had done before. He's able to find God in this quiet place to hear the voice of God. Because of the threats that are all around him, because of the way he feels like the world is crashing down on him, he's at the bottom of the darkest valley, and there in the quiet place, he hears the voice of God. You're always preparing, for you know not what. And Elijah finds God in this moment. And God knows. Elijah has been poured out. He is empty. So what God is going to do in this moment is fill him back up. And the voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says the same thing again because he's still feeling it. I, I have served you zealously. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, God. And now they're trying to kill me too. Verse 15. The Lord told him. And listen, this is what God says, right? In response to Elijah on the run, in in a time where Elijah feels like he's at his lowest low, God tells him, here's what I want you to do. Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, the grandson of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat. I don't know where these names came from. I'm just reading them. Oh, you had a baby boy. What'd you name him? Shaphat. Oh, great. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from the town of uh, this other town, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000, there it is, others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Here's what Elijah discovered that day in the cave. That the God who reigns on the mountain where fire falls from heaven, where it feels like everything is going your way, is the same God who is sovereign over the valley. The God who reigns on the mountain is sovereign in the valley. The God who is with you when you're winning and world is, the world is going your way is present in the deepest, darkest night. And that same God who is with you on the mountain is with you in the valley. And what God does in this moment, you you might think that God's going to give Elijah a pep talk and say, oh, it's not that bad. I've got your back. You're a great prophet. You know, you've got more things to do. He does. God doesn't give him a pep talk. This isn't a post-game or a pre-game or a pep rally speech. What God does in this moment, he says, hey, I've got more for you to do. I'm not done with you yet. There is more for you to do. He gives Elijah something to do, and he gives Elijah someone to go serve. He says, I've got a job for you. I needed you to go anoint two more kings who I want you to anoint for my purposes and my plans. And then I need you to go find this guy named Elisha, and I want you to to grab him and take him and mentor him, and he's going to take your place one day. I have someone for you to know, someone for you to serve. I've got something for you to do, Elijah, and I've got someone for you to serve. Elijah, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done. 
I know that Baal wasn't defeated completely and utterly like you thought on the mountain. I know that evil wasn't completely defeated that day. And by the way, that's not going to happen in your lifetime, but I'm not done with you yet. I've got something for you to do, and I've got someone for you to serve. Elijah, I'm not done with you. God wasn't finished with Elijah, and here's the news I want you to know today. God isn't done with you yet either. And if you feel like today that you are in that same valley, if you feel like or if you've ever felt like you've been in that deepest, darkest night, I want you to know God's not done with you yet. If like Elijah, you feel overcome with fear and you are afraid and you don't know what's going to happen next and you feel like you're running for your life sometimes, I want you to know God is not done with you yet. And maybe like Elijah, God wants to find you in a quiet place. And when he does, I want to tell you what I think he might say. I think he's going to say, you need to find something to do, and you need to find someone to serve. And some of you know that this is just true. This is a principle of life, right? That one way out of the valley, one way out of that place when you feel like you're in the deepest, darkest night, it's just practical wisdom, right? To find something to do and to find some, someone to help. That, that, that when you focus your, your time and your attention on others, you always feel better. But this is deeper than that because this points to a spiritual reality. That God wants you to know that there is a kingdom initiative he has in mind for you. That he wants you to partner with him in participating and making things on earth as they are in heaven. And that your purpose is to be used by God with the talents and gifts that he has given you to benefit the church, to spread the gospel, to go into all the world and make disciples. This is what God is calling you to. It is your purpose. And when you are, when you are in the deepest, darkest night, when you are in the valley, God wants to find you. God wants to speak to you in the silence. And at some point, after he's met you there, after he's sustained you, after he has reassured you, after he has given you rest, I can tell you God is wanting to give you a job. And not only that, but he wants you to give you someone to serve. Maybe the questions that you need to ask today, maybe the question I need to ask today is what can I do and who can I help? Where can I serve and who can I love? Like what do I need to be doing and who do I need to be do, you know, doing life with? Because all of us, all of us, when we find ourselves in that moment, when we turn to God, I believe we'll hear him say, I'm not done. I'm not done with you yet. I've still got a purpose in mind for you. And I've still got someone who needs you to come alongside them and serve. Church, if you would, let's stand. So what do you do when you hit rock bottom? You might want to ask, well, you could ask almost anyone you read about in your Bible, right? Ask Moses. Forty years in exile, feeling abandoned by God, after letting God down, by the way, or so he thought. And Moses has this epic encounter with God in a bush that's burning, but not burning up. You could ask Jonah who turned away and was running from God and wound up in the belly of a fish for three days, feeling abandoned and and lost 
and God still used him. You could ask Elijah, who literally asked God to die. Take my life, he prayed. And would you get this? If you fast forward to the end of the story, Elijah never dies. God comes in a chariot of fire and takes him to heaven. How cool is that? I want to go that way. (laughs) He prayed for God to take his life, and in fact, Elijah never died. He just went home with God one day. Or you could ask Jesus. Jesus, who literally felt abandoned and forsaken and all alone on the cross, separated by God because of my sin and your sin. And then he died. And if you know anything about the word death in the Bible, the word death in the Bible always means the same thing. It means separation from God. That's death. So when Jesus died, he was literally separated for the first time in all of eternity from God. And then three days later, he heard Father God whisper, Arise. tomb open that day. So if you feel like you're walking in the valley of the shadow of death today, I want you to know God wants to lift you out of that. I'm going to ask our elders and their wives to make their way around the room, and if you feel like you're in the valley today, they would love to pray with you. And maybe while we sing, you could just be in a corner of this room somewhere in a quiet place. Praying to the God who speaks in the silence. If you're looking for God, I want to encourage you. Look for him in the quiet places. Because I truly believe you will most often hear his voice. In the sound of silence. Because our God is a God who reigns over the silence. And he reigns over your life. And he is sovereign. And he is with you. And he knows what you need. And he's waiting to meet you there. And when he finds you, he won't scold you. He will lift you up. Because he has more for you to do. God is not done with you yet. He's not done with you yet. Let's sing.